This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 110 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have some greats from the thoroughbred world, and you're going to love them. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer back with me today, Jen. Hey, How are hey, you? Hey, I missed a show. You missed a show, finally. You Gosh. poor thing, you're like a slave to Horsemanship Radio. Yes, but we had fun. We had fun with Glenn, and you were off having fun at Road to the Horse. I was off slaving over a hot microphone. Yeah, <laughs> and almonds. I heard next. And week. almonds. Oh my goodness! The broadcasting booth at the Kentucky Horse Park Alltech Arena, um, right outside of the of the booth, was one of those little stands that roasts does honey roasted almonds. Well, they were also doing uh, pecans and cashews. So all weekend long, we had that smell wafting into the booth. Oh. Yeah, oh. we ate a lot of Love. almonds. Even all you vegetarians can say, ah, right now too. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good for you too. So Road to the Horse, Tootie Bland, what a production. I've never gone. You've never been to Road to the Horse? Can you believe it? It always comes at a weird time of the year that things are just too crazy to do. And I would love to go see it. I've I've been to Mustang makeovers, extreme Mustang makeovers, and these, you know, juried ones through universities and things like that, too. A lot of fun. I love the premise. I love that. But I am just blown away that there's, I mean, how many people, how many people come to see it? Uh, the arena seats 7,000. Wow. So and it was, it was just about a full house. Yeah. It was? Okay. Yeah. And it's for three days? Am I it's right? three days of competition. Yes. Um, each of, and it, it changes a little bit each year because Tootie can't contain herself. <laughs> she's very creative. She, yeah, she's a force to be reckoned with, that woman. <laughs> and this time out, we had three clinicians. There were supposed to be four, oh. but the fourth clinician was unable to attend due to health issues. Oh, get better, so, Get better quick, Jim Anderson. Uh, so we had three competitors. Each of the three competitors had two horses each. Okay. All right. So the premise is they're sort of matched for size and temperament. Am I nope. wrong? E- no? They're all they're The horses are picked. Well, each competitor draws out of a hat and they get to choose in a specific order. You pick up number one, you get to choose whichever horse you want first. Okay. So it's a double elimination. So the the competitors have had the opportunity to see the horses in a pen as a group, but that's all. And they know the horses' pedigrees ahead of time. Okay. And that's, that's it. Interesting. Um, but then they have to walk out. They take the 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 remuda, the little herd of horses, and they put them out in the giant Alltech arena. And they're milling about out there, and they are highly entertaining when they do it. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of the competitors goes out, and they choose their horse. Each horse has a number written on his bum. So they pick their horses that way, and they they choose their two horses. Do and they get to move them around, or does nope. anybody move them around? Okay, nope. you just really literally just watch them uh, in their natural state. They have yeah, they have cowboys from the Four Sixes ranches there, and the horses are moved from the back where they have their pen, where they live as a group, into mm-hmm. the arena, and then mm-hmm. the cowboys move away 
So they, okay. they try not to influence the horses in any way while they're there, except if it's a safety issue. Okay. So, so do they ever mix it up or do they kind of, do they start to do a pecking order? How long are they in there? Um, 10 minutes, 15 oh, minutes. Okay. It's pretty yeah. quick. Pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quick. Um, so you probably see them in more high alert than you do see them relax. Does anybody lay down? Or no, roll, actually or? it's quite the reverse oh. because they're, it's the same group of horses and they just move them back and forth from the back to the front. They're always in the pen together. So by the time, gotcha. and they, I think they get there like 48 hours before the competition starts. And they let them something. saddle. That's and they're, good. and they're in that van together too. So they're a little, mm-hmm. a knit group. So there's very, very much a social hierarchy being sorted out. Very gotcha. much so. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And they all come from the same ranch, though, so they must have... So you get to see the pedigree, but there must be some uh, um, overlap there, right? We got brothers and sisters out there or yes. anything like that? Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure we do. I don't, I'm don't. i not good with pedigrees, but there's like four... They'll usually have like four different stallions that they're from. Mm-hmm. Um, frequently, you'll have ones that have had siblings at previous Road mm-hmm. to the Horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember right, I could be wrong on this, and... Dr. Blodgett, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, these are all horses that are bred for use on the Four Sixes Ranch. Gotcha. They're not so. horses that are bred for sale. They're bred for their own personal use. So mm-hmm. Foundation. The, yes. Mm-hmm. The, the So the lineage tends to be very similar amongst them. Mm-hmm. That's um, good. Yeah. So that was really yeah. interesting. And, it, and it's really funny. They, they put them out the day before everything gets going. They put them into the arena for about 10, 15 minutes to let them see it. And again, they just put them in there. And at that time, the Cowboys will get them into the giant indoor arena and leave them be. And then they'll take the horses and they'll gently zhuzh them so that they get to the other end of the arena and leave them alone. And then Mm -hmm. they take them back out. So if you had three competitors, are there six horses only out there or do they bring more horses and they get to choose from? They bring a remuda of 12 typically. Gotcha. Okay. And then they get to choose. All right. So what do they do with the ones that don't get chosen? They just hang out in the pen for the rest of the week. And then uh, they are available for purchase for people who want to just buy themselves a baby horse. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I know, every year they've all been sold. Mm-hmm. I could so, again. Dr. Yeah, Blodgett, because people me. get to see them and hang out. And they, they probably like the, some of that action they see out there, too. And I was, I was willing to home. take one of them home this year. See? Yeah, one of go. them really caught my eye. See, I bet they're, I bet they're cute. And you just must, it's like Stockholm syndrome. You fall, probably fall in love with them by the end of the three days, all of them. Anyway, is there a little, um, herd bound going on when you bring, when they start, the competitors start bringing them in? Interesting question. This year they changed it up a little bit. In previous years, um, the competitors always had their horse in a round pen and they were working with their horse in the round pen. Sometimes there was a, um, and, and then there's always the Wrangler's horses in there because they're always there for safety to make sure everybody stays safe if a horse needs to be moved and things like that. Um, and you would invariably have at least one or two of the horses calling to his friends, oh my goodness, I'm out here all alone. This year, they did it a little bit different. Each competitor had two horses, which they've done before, but they had both horses at the same time. Oh, I see. So the That's arena had three round pens. And each round pen had attached to it a large catch pen. Oh, okay. So not in the same round. They're not in the round pen together, but they're well, kind of together. Even better. Yeah. That was the yeah. that was the competitor's choice. They could put them in the round pen together. Oh, okay. Or they could separate them. And some did one and some did the other. Now, what did the winner do? 
um, the winner, her horses spent the vast majority of their time in the round pen together, but they compete separately on the final yeah. day when they right. actually compete. Those two horses, each horse comes into the Alltech arena completely alone. Singly. Yeah. So it's advantage, disadvantage. You got to think about that yeah. then. And How I, is it going yeah. To and she did her horses most of the time. They were in the round pens together. There was, I mean, the catch pens attached, but it's still separate. There's yeah. a gate there. Um, yeah. Some of the competitors kept their horses separate 99% of the time. Um, and one of the competitors, it was split about half and half. Hmm. So that'll be an interesting trend. One of the things we've noticed in join up, you know, which is the process of taking a single horse into a round pen and starting them by letting them choose to move away from you because they don't know you or trust you for any reason, you know, and, uh, then that send away lets them express their flight distance, which is typically about a quarter of a mile before they start expressing language that says, hmm, what is going on with you? You haven't hurt me yet and you're still there in the middle of the round pin. What up? And they start giving you the language with the ear and they, the licking and chewing, the lowering the head and then the smaller circle. That's typically kind of the order that they're in, but it's a conversation. So there's no rules. But we we introduce this to some people will recognize the top names in polo, like Adolfo Cambiasso and the Gracida brothers at the time. There's still one living. And they went down to Argentina where they start about a thousand babies a year. Wow. Yeah. And for like one guy, Adolfo was starting a thousand just for himself. And they would put two together when they did the same. So they took the concept of join up down there that they learned up here in, in dad's round pen, Monty Roberts. And they said, well, you know, it's just easier with all these horses to do two at a time. Why not? <laughs> we got a lot of horses to do and they, there's a little less, you know, f fretting and, and they, they pull it off. It's really interesting. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. You know, nobody ever says that we're, we're done here yet developing this concept. Mm -hmm. So right. I love that. And I love that there's an international flavor to, to road to the horse now, right? Well, and for, for several years, they've had various and sundry iterations because as I said, it changes up a little bit each year. The winner, um, Wilson is from New Zealand and then we had a competitor from the United States that was Nick Dowers. And right. we had a competitor from Australia, Dan James. Right. And the fourth competitor was supposed to be Jim Anderson, who was a Canadian. And, and one year they did teams. They did national teams and they had two people per team. Mm -hmm. And they did it that way. So it is very interesting how we get a, a very international feel for the entire competition. But it, it's mm -hmm. just... It's a fascinating look at how they're all going for the same goal. They're trying to get that colt to the point where he can be ridden confidently. Confidence mm -hmm. on the horse's part, not the rider's part. Hopefully the rider's already confident. Mm -hmm. um, confidently through what they know is going to be a perfectly crazy obstacle course at the end <laughs> by working with this horse for a total of, I think, 90 minutes by the time they get to the end of the competition, they've been on the horse for, they've worked with the horse, not been on his back for 90 minutes. The one horse who's, who was uh, nicknamed Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, a absolute <laughs> crowd favorite. That was um, one of Nick Dower's horses. And that horse struggled mightily with the entire process. And Nick mm. did a very good job of taking on that horse's struggle at a personal level and saying, to hell with the competition. I'm going to do what you need to do. Mm. And I think he was on that horse's back 
for maybe 10 minutes by the time the finals came around. Wow, minutes. not very much. Not very much. <laughs> and the horse did really well. They have to do uh, what they call the obligatory or ob- the rail work. And it's just basic. They have to make the horse walk and trot and lope. Mm-hmm. And they have to have him stop and turn. Really basic stuff, mount and dismount. And mm-hmm. he did that pretty well because once the horse's light bulb would come on, it came on pretty bright. But I think the only hor- he and that horse only went through, I think, three obstacles of the, no- of the 11. That horse got the biggest cheer of the entire weekend. Oh, because so every- does does the crowd get to influence the judges at all? Do you think? I don't know if the crowd does or not. The ju- the crowd definitely influences the competitors because it's great mm. when the competitor they're they're on the clock. They're only allowed to work with the horse for a very certain period of time. They have to give the horse a certain number of breaks for a certain period of time where they completely leave it be and not influence it at all. And if they're mm. running against the clock, the crowd will jump up and down and scream and yell and say, "So and so, you need to get out of your pen." Um, if they if they miss an obstacle, this, the oh, crowd screams and yells it. and says, you forgot, you have to go back. Um, so from that point of view, they're very influential. They encourage the crowd to scream and yell because the horses have to get used to it. Oh, yeah. That's but whether good. I have never asked a judge, I should, does the crowd influence you? And I know the judge is going to say, of course not, but... But to be honest, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're here, but I, I just didn't know if that was like actually part of it. Like, uh, you know, those, those, uh, singing fan favorite stuff. It's not, there's I no they... fan favorite category, but there should be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think so because it, because you know what 10,000 people or 7,000 people know, uh, I imagine it's mostly horse people out in the crowd. What is it? I'm sure it is. Uh, they're yeah. rabid, rabid fans. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love it. I got to go. You, sh- you okay. should go. And for people who say, well, I can watch it online. This year, you couldn't watch it on the line. They only had audio feed from us. They didn't have video feed, but they will make a CD that you'll be able to buy or DVD you'll be able to buy later. But just like every, and you've been to, to many large events. If you go to the Kentucky Derby or um, a world championships horse show or the World Equestrian Games or the Olympics, when you go to an equestrian competition that has tens of thousands of people like that sitting in the stands going ballistic for their their favorite it's a completely different feel than watching that same event on a television set yeah that's true that's true and even just being able to see what that horse is going through up close and you know as much as you can in a a there's there's something in the air that whole electricity yeah the atmosphere knowing what that horse is going through at the time it's just yep can't do it but it's nice to include the world and have that ability because it'll probably pull more people into it i'm a little worried about what they're doing over in europe because they're they're taking some mustangs over there i hope that actually that there is a way that they can really get that feel for it to be able to voyeur, you know, to see mm-hmm. into it um, electronically as opposed to the expense of taking Mustangs over there or worse yet, breeding them over there. We don't need to breed Mustangs. We have <sighs> them here, right? So, uh, but I know they're not Mustangs. They, you know, I know we call them Mustang mic covers in some cases and that is fun, but you're just taking raw horses and uh, they can do that over in Europe. But even so, most of the, they don't have wild horses and they don't have them growing up in big areas over in Europe. Right. So there is, a, is an angle of de- domestication yes. that you can't deny, you yes. know, and it's just not that pure, pure language that you see in yeah. these. Well, they have in certain parts of Great Britain, they have areas where there are feral horses that are just it's like, mm, we're not too sure who owns that thing, but that little herd's <laughs> been out there for two generations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, like there's par- parts of Europe that do have 
herds, you know, groups of that still they've tried to maintain some some wildness in them and everything, too. There's some in Poland and, you, you know, you'll get these even in Germany. There's a couple of herds, but they're not like here, you know, mm-hmm. even like you're saying these are grow up. It was South Dakota. Did you say they are in the four sixes ranch? And I should it, know where that is, but it I doesn't do not. matter. I mean, it's I know it's in the wild. It's of, it's you know. yeah. They're they have they have lots of really gorgeous drone footage of the four sixes ranch. It's um yeah, hundreds of square miles, and the the horses yeah. are brought up in the open. Um, nice. There's not a lot of coddling going on. Yeah, <laughs> we use some of those. Yeah, we have a guy in the San Inez Valley. We, there's a mountain top above Lake Kachuma here, and he grows up horses up there, and they have to survive. They there's cougars, there's snakes, there's you know the world is up there, and uh, there is some, there's some intelligence level of these horses like the Mustang survival and being out in that open area you know, the, the smart ones survive. So I think that's, you know, you, you say, well, what's really the difference between wild? I know there's the touching and there's being around people as part of it, but it's also that survival mechanism in a horse too, that makes their sensitivities and their, their reactions to the starting process even more keen. So you, you could get that from what we might call a domesticated horse, a quarter horse or something. But if they grew up, in a mountaintop there, you know, they're pretty much as wild as any Mustang you'd find on a BLM facility, you know, grounds. Yes. Horses out in the that are, yeah, exactly. Horses that have been bred for generations and raised in that kind of an atmosphere where, um, they foal and they're just left to their own devices and you end up with a different genetically, you end up with per- different personality traits and different learning traits than you would in, for example, racing thoroughbreds, certain mm-hmm. characteristics are irrelevant. So ones that as a amateur enthusiast, I find undesirable as a racehorse, it doesn't matter. So that might get carried on for generation after generation after generation. Mm-hmm. So you have very, very different animals. It's almost like with dog breeds, you have dog breeds that have a strong prey drive Dogs that have dog breeds that have a strong retrieve drive, mm-hmm. they they breed those things into them intentionally. They take a specific trait of that all dogs have, and they accentuate that one. And the other ones kind of fade into the background a little bit. We've done the same thing with horses, but when you have yep. horses that grow up as natural as we can get them and still be domesticated horses, that balance of traits is going to. Mother Nature is going to rebalance it a little bit. And that, you're right. That is very interesting. That, mm-hmm. And I've often wondered if, if we were to take that same process that they use at the makeovers and grab random horses that are raised domestically. In a t- traditional, mare comes in, mare foals, foal gets dragged in and out of the barn every day with mommy by a little halter, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And try different. to do that same process. Mm-hmm. If How different, it would, what would look different with it? Of course it's going to be different. What would look different about it? Also, it would be very hard to be very even for the the trainers, right? You know, you wouldn't be able to do it competitively. It would just be interesting as a, they should do a science trial on that. Just just to watch it. Yeah. 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 Fun. Well, fun. Thank you for sharing about that. Since I didn't get to go, I'm glad I got to talk to somebody who did get to go and you were like front and center. So come next, come next year, wear dark glasses and a big hat. No one will know you're there. I I don't care if people know (laughs) I, I just want to be there. Yeah, no. And then, and then you can sneak into the broadcast booth with us. 
And oh, we can, I we can go surprise so, guest. Debbie Lauk is here. Fake credentials, my fake media credentials. I'll sneak in. <laughs> That'd be really fun. Really fun. Well, let's get on with the show today. I, I know that we've got some uh, some great people. I mean, these. How do I get some of these people that have been in the industry for so long? You know, I, I just I so appreciate being able to grab their time. We have an Eclipse Award winning Ramon Dominguez and we have uh, people might not even know the name of Marion, but sh- you will know her work. You will have seen a blog that she's written or an article she's written because she's just iconic in the uh, the world of uh, media in magazines and things like that. People have had her writing for them for years. So you'll get to know them up next. Right after this from Omega Fields. Your horse is your partner in sport, in leisure, and just in life. To keep him at his peak performance and optimal health, a solid nutritional foundation is key. Ideally, horses are able to graze fresh, growing grasses which most closely mimic their natural diet. But that may not always be possible, and we may need to supply some of those missing ingredients in today's diets and provide more functional foods. One component of a horse's diet that is often underfed are omega-3 fatty acids. While more prevalent in fresh forages, harvested forages are lower in omega-3 fatty acids due to their more advanced maturity. Obviously, grasses and legumes have to grow to a sufficient height in order to be harvested, while foraging patterns of horses show great preference for shorter, less mature plants. That's why modern horsemen and horsewomen trust Omega Horse Shine to provide a powerful, bountiful source of omega-3 fatty acids for their equine partners. Look for Omega Horse Shine from Omega Fields at your local tack and feed supplier, or you can find them online at omegafields.com. Ramon Dominguez was born in 76 in Caracas, Venezuela. He's an Eclipse Award-winning champion jockey in the American thoroughbred horse racing business and is now retired. And Ramon began riding horses at age 16 in his native Venezuela. And he began in show jumping and then turned to riding thoroughbreds in flat racing events before he immigrated to the United States. And he began his riding in Florida's Hialeah Park Racetrack in 1996. He's a winner of 4,985 career races, three consecutive Eclipse Awards for Outstanding Jockey. That's, I don't know if that can be done again. And a total of 20 individual meet riding titles at the New York Racing Association tracks and is in the National Museums of Racing's Hall of Fame in 2016. It was that induction class. And his career then ranges from 96 to 2013. The number of mounts he was on is 21,267. Wins, as I said, the fourth 1,985 win percentage. Are you ready? 23.44% is his winning percentage, and he has earnings of over $191 million. Well, welcome, Ramon Dominguez. I am so honored to have you on our show. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thank you, Debbie, for having me on the show. I'm very excited to speak with you. Oh, I, I don't know that I've ever had actually anybody on this show, including, you know, some greats in the thoroughbred industry, quite as papered and credentialed as you have been in your world of jockey 
thoroughbred training and and riding. Uh, I love your story that you started off uh, in a third world country. We were just talking about first world problems in third world countries, but um, I love that you have been able to overcome and it's just such the American dream. I'm really pleased that people uh, who listen to the show can learn a little bit from you. And I'd love to start back when you were nothing but an apprentice jockey. And I know you came from the show jumping world, but what made you leap into the thoroughbred industry? Well, actually my, uh, Involvement within the show jumping world, it wasn't by choice. <laughs> and that is because uh, since I was very young, I was around 13 years old, uh, my dad went to the racetrack with him because he actually worked for outside racing. He had a place where people would go and place their bets. And back in the days, he had to physically take the machine that people gambles through and take it to the racetrack. So I went and watched a light race for the first time. And this was love uh, first time. I fell in love. I said, that is absolutely what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I, I just knew it. And um, so when the time came and I said to my dad, dad, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, he wasn't too happy about the idea. He was, of course, concerned for the obvious reasons that it is a dangerous sport. So he tried to um, take me away from, from racing, and he found out that there was a show jumping school not too too far from where we live, and he asked me if I would be willing to take lessons, and I felt like that was a, a good consolation prize. So uh, <laughs> he took me, I started doing show jumping, and I absolutely loved everything about it. However, a year later, I was uh, taking the bus on my way home from taking the riding lessons, and uh, a kid that was my age asked me if I was a jockey because I think that I had a helmet in my hand. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I'm riding show jumper. So he uh, he told me that he was going to a, a training center for throwbreds not too far from there. And the next day, the, the rest is history. I just decided not to go to the show jumping school and I went to the training center. So that's my uh, drift from, from show jumping to, to uh, riding racehorses. Yeah, Jackie Ray. Uh, yeah, I I think it's a, a bit humorous that your dad thought show jumping was a lot less dangerous. <laughs> it's still an extreme sport, but but I'm so glad that you uh y- y- for us anyway, selfishly, we're really glad that you ended up being a jockey. I'm sure you would have done great in show jumping too. But so you hopped over to Florida. Is that that you came with your family or did you come on your own to Florida to get into the racing? I came by myself. Uh, mm-hmm. yes, I was alone. Mhm. Amazing, amazing career. I mean, we've we've touched a little bit on what a great career you had, and we'll get back to that. But uh, just to establish a little bit of your background, I'd love to know, as an apprentice jockey, I mean, there's there's a lot of guys who go into uh, racing thoroughbreds for a lot of different reasons, whether they love extreme sports, uh, they love the the skill, or they love good money. It's pretty good money if you're a good jockey. What, as an apprentice, did you learn from the horses that you think pushed you beyond the apprentice level? It is a, a process. Um, so I was really just uh, taking all in, uh, learning as much as I could. And uh I feel like looking back, of course, uh, that's something that even today somebody asked me, oh, what, what do you think was the number one factor that helped you uh, accomplish so much? And honestly, I had to stop and think about it. I don't really know. I don't know if it's just one thing. Mm-hmm. However, 
Um, I do know for sure that my drive when it came to riding racehorses, it was an obsession. I just absolutely love everything I um, about riding and anything and everything I did, even outside racing, I was always thinking about what kind of impact that will have for my career. So I was just uh, like a horse with blinders, or, or as we call it, the <laughs> horse racing with the blinkers on. I just committed to learning and, and becoming the best jockey I could. Um, one thing that I know that it was uh, absolutely amazing and instrumental for me was my foundation in show jumping and the ability to connect with a horse. And that's something that it, it was really a great story now that I look back. Um, but um, uh, the ability to connect is something that I know that was uh, amazing in my journey and, and then becoming uh, so accomplished in racing because uh, just being present with the horse. And it's something that I can talk for hours. I absolutely love and miss that part of uh, riding race horses. Yeah, so the connectedness with the horse, that's you understanding a horse better and the horse getting to know you a bit, which is hard in the thoroughbred industry because you, you're you off and on horses all day long. And how much time do you have to get to build a relationship with the horse? They get to know you. How did you make that connectedness with the horse? Yeah, and that's a good point that you bring. And uh, it's something that in the beginning, uh, I started, started riding race horses. And um, this uh, communication, if there was any, uh, it was just a very mechanical um, way of riding. Just you kind of take a look at the program and see where your horse should be, and you just do what you're supposed to do. And um, however, after years of riding and actually doing well, uh, somehow I um, tap into really the ability to be present with the horse and connect with the horse. And uh, when I mentioned show jump, and it's because I remember always uh, hearing my professor or my teacher telling me to keep uh, contact with the horse and that meant to have just enough uh, pressure in the the reins where uh, the horse could feel my hands and I could feel the horse's mouth. So mm -hmm. that's something that continued and I feel like I was able to take it to a very high level where um, there will be things that for those who are listening and, and have uh, any experience in, in the back of a horse, they will be able to understand maybe to some degree. But things like coming out of the starting gate and the horse will be very um, eager to go forward. And uh, you, I just will, for example, in this case, apply uh, pressure in their mouth and just be just staring like a, just mm -hmm. very, very quiet. I wouldn't even move at all. I actually, in some cases, wouldn't even breathe. And the fraction of a second that that horse will get my response because uh, unlike what most people think that you, the horses, when you get on their mouth, um, that you're slowing them down. Yes, you're slowing them down, but that's actually one of the worst uh, ways of really reprehend a horse. A horse that do not like it when we are in their mouth. So while I'm applying this type of pressure, uh, eventually the horse may just let go of the uh, pressure that he's also applying on the bead, mm -hmm. but the moment that he does that, I simultaneously will let go of the pressure a little yeah. bit, mm -hmm. and if he also senses that and he slows down a little more, that's exactly what I wanted, and I will mm -hmm. also let go of the pressure a little bit. So, and this is something that happens just right right away, in instantaneously. So, and it's fascinating because 
sometimes uh, or often you get a horse, you actually can feel with your legs how they're taking a deep breath and mm-hmm. they let all their air out. And God forbid, either ears go forward, it's over. I mean, you have this horse, this horse exactly where you want yeah. it. And that's a horse that, as they, we say in, in racing, the horse had just switched off. So he is very calm now, and he's just reserving all his energy to the end when you need him to really run fast. Exactly. I hope that that was not really too high of, that it was simple enough for people to understand, but it's something that is... Um, fascinating at the same time is quite simple once that we allow ourselves to be present with a horse exactly no that's brilliant and it's probably the thing that people search for their whole lives to become better at so it, it's simple to say but not so easy to accomplish but when you fe- get that feeling what do you think your heart rate is when you're in a race do you have any idea well it's a great question and um Actually, after many years of riding, uh, one day I go into the starting gate and I'm getting ready and it seems like everybody's ready. And uh, something happened where, hey, this horse is not quite where we need him to be. So let's just take a little break or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I go from being really tense, like ready for this horse to jump and kind of go with him to, okay, let me just relax. And uh, my heart is going a million miles an hour. <laughs> and it wasn't that I was scared. I mean, by then I had ridden horses 20,000 times. So it's just that your adrenaline is through the roof. And I feel like your heart rate needs to be at that pace so that you can go with the horse. But interestingly, uh, the horse heart rate is just as high because I can feel it again with my feet or my, mm-hmm. my legs. So, um, yes, you are just a very intense, it's a very intense activity and you are just um, your heart rate is going very fast, but it's something that is no fear. It's just um, pure adrenaline and just the rush of being in that moment that everything needs to happen very, very fast. Do you think, do you think, I, I can understand that adrenaline coming out of the gate. Do you think as your career uh, went on, which is just an unbelievable career, I mean, how do you get 23, almost 24% winning percentage out of nearly 5,000 wins in 21,000 mounts. Do you think your adrenaline came down over the years, your heart rate came down over the years, or did you fight that you had to keep that up to be as competitive? Well, it's funny because I don't really know um, if my heart rate was measured while I was riding. I don't know exactly how high it will be. But emotion-wise, I can tell you that as soon as you come out of the starting gate and I will get the position that I wanted, and, and I'm talking about just one or two jumps, uh, right away, there will be such a great sense of calmness. Uh, mm-hmm. I will be uh, very relaxed. And uh, again, my heart maybe was going very fast, but I felt like extremely relaxed at the same time, alert and mm-hmm. connected with the horse. And I cannot emphasize enough how amazing and how important it is to really just be connected with this horse and uh, you getting a feel of what the horse wants and vice versa, the horse understanding what you are asking from him. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And you told me in a conversation we had earlier that, um, that the longer your career went on, the more connected you were with horses, that the less you moved up there, the more you became sort of invisible up there for the horse. Is that right? That is so, that is true, and um, it's funny because um, in the thoroughbred world, um, I was taught, uh, as most people, that 
basically you need to know you need to let the horse know that you're the boss and uh, it's such a macho mentality and it's so silly uh, and that's what I did you know I would just let the horse know that I was the one in charge and um, there was like a big circle when I went back to my beginnings my roots in show jumping and there was something that my teacher in show jumping told me once that I will never forget and uh, he was actually at this point a little bit mad because I was just getting a little more confidence on the back of a horse and I felt like I could do more and I just was complicating things by doing too much and just uh, throwing my body this way and that way. And he said to me, the best jockey or the best rider is the one that the horses notices the least. Mm. And I said, wow. So, and that's basically what I did the last 10 plus years in my career as a jockey by um, allowing to connect with the horse uh, especially on the early stages, which is so, so important. Then after that, I will be basically be a passenger. A mm-hmm. passenger, but I um, allow the horse to really relax the best I could. And uh, then the horse will just be going on cruise control, so to speak, and just waiting for any signal. Now, this is the key here and what is uh, so great that that signal didn't have to be something very no- noticeable. It will be just maybe just increasing uh, the pressure in their mouth. Which at uh, this point, uh, when you're hitting the the last part of the race, it's actually a sign. I want you to go forward and you do some uh, smooch with your with your uh, mouth. You make a little bit of noise, and they respond to that very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, in many cases, I didn't have to move my hands at all, or even use the riding crop. If anything, just tap them on the shoulder. It's a sign of okay, I need to go forward, and that was it. So it's a uh, so awesome and so fulfilling when you get the most out of a horse, um, yet mm-hmm. asking very little. So true. That's cool. When when did trainers notice that you had you were going to move on in the industry? I know you. There's sort of the self fulfilling thing that the more horses you win with, the more horses you get to choose from from the trainers. But there must have been a moment that you kind of remember back from trainers where they started to put you on better horses. They started to give confidence to you that you were going to be you know their top pick do you remember yeah and honestly i don't think that there was just one moment that that was defining whether oh i'm going to quote unquote maker or not mm-hmm. um it was a, a, a ever evolving process where um one thing that i was known for and i'm proud of is that i rode the horses at the lowest level uh, with the same passion and the same uh, drive than I did with the horses in the big races. So why was that important? Because while I was uh, in my beginning stages and riding these uh, low-level races, because it's really all I could get at that point, um, I was able to improve the performance of the horses and win races here and there. And um, people will take notice. And then of course, that led to riding better horses, and eventually I was given the opportunity to ride uh, one or two good horses, and then I won my first big race, and then uh, that kind of opened the credibility where the horsemen, whether it was the trainers or the owners, uh, at that point it was easy choice for them to put me on their horses, and of mm-hmm. course, uh, simultaneously I was learning, so I was uh, fulfilling my engagement correctly, and uh, mm-hmm. before I knew I was riding good horses uh, on a frequent basis. And that also led to the opportunity to um, 
partnered up with the guy who was my agent in the last 13 years of my career, who was just amazing. And he was extremely influential and extremely uh, important in my accomplishment, my success, because uh, he had a great relationship with everybody. And him and I got along extremely, extremely well as well. So um, that everything was kind of falling into place um and but but again it was a process it was not just one moment that something magical happened and yeah it was just a uh, something that continued to evolve the right the right way right yeah and and your agent's name is steven his name is steve Roshin. steve Roshin, yeah well credits to him and kudos and thank you for for um, listening to him and taking his advice so he was doing a good job to get you on the right horses too so is there a horse I'm thinking of the horses again that, you know, um, you leapfrogged on t- in your career. Do you remember any horses that you had the greatest connection with? They don't have to be the greatest horses necessarily, but I mean, dad, dad remembers his, his favorites and they're from different worlds. He had Johnny Tivio, uh, was his Western reigning horse that he still believes is one of his greatest accomplishments. And he was a little barb horse, uh, part Mustang probably, you know, and then Lomitas, which was one of the greatest thoroughbreds and still is producing some of the greatest thoroughbreds on earth. He just thought he had a connection with him as, as a greatness thing. You know, he just seemed to hold, um, royalty in his, in his blood. Do you have horses that stand out in your mind like that? Yeah, absolutely. Actually (laughs) too many to count, but (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there are maybe three right now that I come to mind quick. And uh, one is a horse that I actually won my first uh, British Cup race, which is uh, a high-level race. Um, and uh, his name it was Better Talk Now. He actually died not too long ago. And uh, he was a horse that used to drift in uh, the last part of the race. So he um, needed some help, but he w- could be a little high-strung the first of the race as well actually the first time i rode him i rode him incorrectly i got him into what we call the clear like he didn't have any horses in front of him and he just ran for like a 16 of a mile and stop but from that i learned and he liked to actually be behind horses and wait 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 and just make one move so we had some great uh connections and great uh victories uh throughout the years uh there was another horse his name was fabulous strike uh very very fast throwbread that he could leave the starting gate fast and finish extremely fast. I mean, I experienced uh, things on the back of this animal that I never, ever experienced on the back of another horse. I mean, he was very unique. Uh, But then there was uh, another horse that uh, ran in just middle uh, level, uh, nothing too big, and his name was Flatball. And I love this horse because I rode him incorrectly two or three times by just doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And then when I tap into really listening to this horse, um, it was amazing because he would absolutely love to be waiting behind horses for a long time. And uh, you just make a short move. And uh, I won a couple races with him that were extremely satisfying for me and fulfilling because I felt like I contributed to his uh, victory. Um, and he told me a lot. So, uh, yeah, those are three horses that. Uh, always uh, will, like your dad, uh, have a special place in my heart, but there are so many of them. Mm. It sounds like the ones that you 
adore are the ones that were a bit misunderstood at first and that you were able to understand what they needed. And that's, that's pretty cool. That's a cool feeling. So true, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. What, what advice do you have for young jockeys that are on that learning curve right now? You never stop learning. I, I could hear that in your voice. So what advice would you give those young jocks right now? Yeah, absolutely. You never stop learning. And actually, even to the day that I rode my last race, I was still making mistakes, but uh, learning from them. So one thing that I will definitely advise any young jockey is um, to really ask questions and uh, ask advice to the riders that are more experienced and maybe pick and choose one or two jockeys that they like um, or it could be multiple that they like different things about them because I feel like there has been over the years, um, that's something that has been lost. Um, it is an extremely competitive sport. And really when you think about every jockey is like a different team and but we are all going to the same locker room, it's a little bit of a crazy dynamic. Um, yeah, that's true. However, we need to really, on the other hand, protect ourselves out there. So, but there is so much uh, openness and uh, jockeys really want to help each other. Uh, and um, especially the more experienced riders, they will absolutely enjoy. And it's a privilege for them to be able to pass down some of the things I have learned along the way and try to that learning curve to make it a little more straight uh, for the new jockeys. Uh, but a lot of them don't ask questions. So that's one thing that I will advise anybody to really mm -hmm. ask for advice. And uh, what do you think that I could do here? Or how do you do this? Because uh, that would be uh, an honor for a jockey. They will feel great if somebody, a, a young mm -hmm. rider, asks them for advice. Yeah, yeah, very good. That is good advice. Thank you. What do you think is, what's something surprising that most people don't know about jockeys? Something surprising that most people don't know about jockeys. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, jockeys, clearly, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind with people is about how um, they don't eat. And, and that is not true. Uh, yeah. We eat and uh, we need to eat well, actually, because um, we ride a lot of horses often. I mean, and so it's just um, you never stop sacrificing certain things like for example i knew exactly what i could eat and what what i couldn't eat uh, but it's every day you have to there is no such a thing as a, the, the time off it's not like a, mm -hmm. somebody who is uh, preparing a boxer let's just say for a fight and after the fight they just go and eat whatever they want mm -hmm. as a jockey yeah. is uh you are married to your career it's a lifestyle so uh, it is crazy because you will finish riding and uh, sometimes you cannot really drink a whole lot of water because the following day you have a light mount. So it is um, a little crazy because there are days when you ride every race, nine, ten races, uh, and yet you have to go and lose two or three pounds in the sauna before the races get started. So uh, those are little things that a lot of people don't know and they uh, take for granted. And uh, they may see a jockey, somebody who is light, skinny. Uh, these guys are extremely, extremely tough individuals. And uh, another thing that people don't realize is that there is a lot of emphasis on how strong they are. And yet, again, although they are strong, 90% um, of the profession or 
the power that a jockey may have uh, in order to succeed uh, in their career, 90% of it is uh, mental. And it's their uh, mm -hmm. ability to overcome uh, different obstacles and uh, uh, it's all mental and attitude. Um, that, that is 90% of the, of the game right there. Yeah, there you go. I focus, I can't imagine how good. And for so long, Ramon, that you focused. And in 2013, you retired after a fall and uh, you were just a you were about to receive your third consecutive Eclipse Award for Outstanding Jockey uh, the day a the day after this fall. You were going to receive that, and um, you were about to. You were trying to win your four hundred four thousand nine 4,986th race. I think it was something crazy like that. But we owe a debt of gratitude to your wife Sharon, who uh, helped you through that and got you back out to the track community again. And, and we really are so pleased that you're out there and you're now helping others. You're a, you're a commentator, you're a motivational speaker, you're, you will help grow the industry in the right way. You are a Brooke ambassador. Um, tell me a little bit about your life post retirement now. Yeah, no, life is great. I mean, for one thing, uh, not only do I continue to be involved in racing in different capacities, and I do absolutely, like you say, owe it to my wife, because if it was up to me, um, going through this uh, grieving period as um, I was in the beginning after not realizing I wasn't going to ride anymore, uh, it was difficult for me to go to the track, but she forced me <laughs> to go to the track, <laughs> and I'm so glad that she did, because I had a great time, and I continue going, so... Yeah. And now um, I had the ability to catch up with life and uh, enjoy time with my kids, uh, something that it was uh, a little bit difficult before because I was writing a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, I'm excited about many other things that are taking place and uh, just enjoying life from a totally different perspective, but equally big as it was before. Mm. Well, we thank you for sharing a little bit of that story with us today. You're one of the most articulate people I know in the thoroughbred racing industry, hands down. And I just so appreciate the direction that you've taken your life in and the help that you're giving to an industry that really could use some heroes. I appreciate you. Thank you, David. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's a privilege to be on the program. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed and understood uh, what I was trying to, to say regarding the, the connection with the horse and, uh, and just give them a, a short view of uh, the beautiful sport of uh, horse racing. Yes. Yeah. So and we'd love to have you back if you'll come. Absolutely. Just tell me when. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Thank you for joining us on Horsemanship Radio. Hi, Carol Herter here, president of Cavallo, home of the world's most trusted and popular hoof boots. You know, one of the most interesting parts of what I do is the many horsey stories I get to hear. Most of them are really uplifting. Some are stories of challenges, and a few are downright sad. Recently, a wonderful woman took the time to approach us at a show to share a story about her horse who went down in quicksand. It started out as a really scary story. We were holding our breaths waiting for the outcome, and it turned out wonderful. They winched the horse out relatively unscathed, albeit, you know, a little traumatized, and everyone standing around were super amazed that he still had his cavallo hoof boots on. Scary story with a good ending. Another testament to cavallo.
If you don't have a pair for your horse, it's time. Cavallos are easy to put on, easy to take off when you want to take them off, and they stay on. They stay on in all terrain. Cavallo, the world's most trusted hoof boots. Marion Altieri is a Saratoga-based writer and editor whose career is focused on horses, horse racing, and rescue and advocacy. She grew up riding American quarter horses on her cousin's farm in rural upstate New York. Her mother took her to the races at Saratoga for the first time when Marion was only four years old. And in 2018, that will mark her 58th year learning on that historical rail around the racetrack. Her voice and passion for women's roles in horse racing brought her to an alliance with the New York Racing Association in 2013 when NYRA, the New York Racing Association, sponsored her radio show, Philly Racing Radio, on a regional station there. Together, NYRA and Marion made history, as she was, at the time, the only female anywhere who hosted her own racing radio show and was a solo hostanista. Well, welcome, Marion Altieri. I'm so happy to have such a great storyteller on Horsemanship Radio. How are you? Well, well, Debbie, I uh, I am so excited about being on your show because, oh my God, I mean, this is a thrill for me uh, beyond being thrilled. I'm delighted. I love it anytime I get a chance to exercise my vo- my vocal cords on the radio because. <laughs> Somebody yeah. a long time ago made the mistake of telling me that I had a hot voice for radio, so I like I to drop my voice in half an octave. And uh, there you go. But to get to do it with you, I'm such a fan. Oh, I mean, to th- yeah. I love Wendy Malick, and to be yes. like I'm on the same show that Wendy Malick was just on. Oh my God, I mean, you have so many people who are real famous people in oh, racing, so in I... the in the horse world. So, gosh, thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, I've been really lucky to uh, to have a forum with these guys. But, you know, the thing is, we all love horses. That's the appeal, I think. And it's it's really fun to get people together in the same spot and get you out from behind a, a keypad and a typewriter and whatever you're using these days, too. You yeah. just have such a storied history of uh, storytelling and, and articles I've read. I, I think I, fir- I must have read articles probably long before... Uh, the equine info exchange where I caught up with you on some beautiful articles that you've written there. But I got to thinking, you know, I don't even know where to start with you. There's so many, so many contacts and connections that you've made mostly in the uh, racing world. I think, am I right on that? A lot of thoroughbred based. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Thoroughbred and Arabian racing. I'm very blessed in that. I've been a, a thoroughbred racing fan for a, It'll be 58 years this summer since I was four. I started riding quarter horses that same year, and my mother took me to Saratoga Racecourse, and I've been hanging at the rail there since I was four. But then uh, nine years ago, I met the wonderful Arabian Racehorse through, well, I think it courted me. I think the the breed courted me, and Mm -hmm. I've come to have some wonderful communications and and friends there. In fact, uh, this July at Briarfest, at the mm-hmm. Lex- Kentucky Horse Park, uh, they they actually called me back in September and asked me to put together a seminar and a celebration around Arabian horse racing because their theme this year is off to the races. Fun. So, yeah, so that's going to be a blast. That's going to be great fun. And uh, some of the biggest people in Arabian racing from all over the world, actually, are coming in to participate in what we're doing. So I'm excited about that. But, yes, I have 
the thoroughbred world has been part of my contact list for uh, half a century. And half I'm not that century. old. I have purple, yeah, that's I have purple right. hair and I'm very cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, you still got a lot of energy left and a lot to do left, I'm sure, too. But we'd love to explore a little bit of um, your first hand on Penny Chinnery, some of these wonderful horses like Cigar and John Henry. And I don't even know where to start, Marianne, but I'd love for you to jump in there and tell us your favorite story first. My favorite story has to be about Penny. God rest her soul. She, uh, she, uh, the world is a sadder place because she's no longer standing on it. She left in September, yes. but before that, in 2003, through a very strange series of circumstances, she and I met and she became my mentor. I was living in Westchester County, New York, which is the county that's just north of New York City, the Bronx, north of the Bronx, and attending a, an Episcopal church there. And one particular Sunday, and that's another story in itself, but I shan't bore you with it. Mm-hmm. I realized that my vocation, my actual, the reason I was put on the planet was, yes, to write, but to write specifically about horses and racing. Because mm-hmm. for 20 years before that, I had been writing about whoever would pay me. Uh, you know, how to keep your house plants alive while you're on vacation. There you go. Things yeah. like that. <laughs> So on a Sunday at the Sunday, June 22nd, 2003, I said, okay, I'm supposed to write about horse racing. And I think there's a lot to be said when they say, you know, you put it out there because the following Sunday in coffee hour at this Episcopal church that I attended, a woman who never gets her facts straight came up to me and said, did you know the secretary gave a million dollars to our church? And thinking that she was probably, you know, crazy. And because it's Pelham, the, the town in which the church is located, is a wealthy little town, and a lot of wealthy people live there. So I turned to her and said, you mean like the secretary of the UN? And she <laughs> said, no, the horse. So I oh. went home, looked, looked up secretary.com and dropped them an email. The next day at five o'clock in the evening, my phone rang. And in those days, we had answering machines, you know, actual pieces of machinery that you could you could screen as they'd say and this voice said hello this is penny chenery calling from lexington and before she could get lexington out of her mouth i grabbed the phone breathlessly yeah. and said hello well it started out with i i don't know if you know anything at all about the colleges called the seven sisters but i graduated from mount holyoke which is the oldest of the seven sisters Penny graduated from Smith, which is the largest, and they happen to be seven miles from each other. And in fact, when I went to Mount Holyoke, I went back as an older woman, as they say. They told us that if people ask us if we're near Smith, we are to tell them, yes, they built near us. So (laughs) there's a long-running rivalry. I get it, yeah. And so the first thing Penny said out of her mouth, she must have Googled me, was, so... You went to Mount Holyoke, huh? Uh-huh. And hearing the uh, a little bit of a willingness to play in her voice <laughs> and crossing my fingers, I said, uh-huh. And she said, so I went to Smith. And she drew out that TH as long as she could. And I <laughs> responded with a phrase that very quickly made me think, what is wrong with you, Marion? Because I said, oh, couldn't get into Mount Holyoke? And, and she <laughs> laughed and said, oh, you're a smart ass. I really yeah. like that. <laughs> oh, good. So hurrah. So phew, 
that was a good thing. Yeah, so we talked and for 45 minutes, she regaled me with stories about her dad who God rest his soul had Alzheimer's. And uh, she made a point, a very strong point of saying that it was not secretariat who saved uh, the meadow farm, his farm that was $6 million in debt. It was Reva Ridge, the horse, their horse who won the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont the year before in 72. And she said, in fact, her dad was in the hospital of just, he was living in a hospital for about seven years in New Rochelle, New York. And the nurses turned on the Kentucky Derby for him and they assumed he couldn't understand. And they said to him, you know, Mr. Mr. Chenery, uh, your horse, Reva Ridge, is in the Kentucky Derby today. And he just had that blank look on his face that he always had. But then as Reva, it became clear that Reva was going to cross the finish line first, tears started flowing down his face. Because he knew that his farm was saved. Mm. Oh my and gosh. everything that riding was on that one of the horse. stories that I pardon me. I said everything riding on that horse, and he knew it. Wow. Yeah, and and that was a story that I felt should have been in the the Movie. secretary film that Disney made because yeah. that that's just a beautiful story. So Penny regaled me for forty five minutes, and at the end of the forty five, she said, "So, uh, she said, so we've talked about me. We talked about my dad. What's your dream, dear?" And it's not too many times people ask you that question. And without hesitation, and I was either stupid or hopeful or naive or something, I said, I need to become the Oprah of horse racing. Mm. <laughs> she said, <laughs> with not a, not a small amount of skepticism, uh, why? I said, well, because I, I need to help. I need to have a strong enough and influential enough voice to help make the sport more loving and nurturing for horses and egalitarian for women. Wow, that's and great. Said, and she said, she said, well, we're on the same page. Let's discuss this. How are you going to do it? So I said, well, as you Googled me, you found out that I'm a writer. I have aspirations of owning a magazine and starting a book publishing house and radio show and eventually wherever, whatever area of media that women are not currently now, you know, there's no such thing as a woman who's the head of a horse racing media right. company right. and she said well can you meet me in my box on opening day at saratoga uh, next month on the 23rd and we can see what we can do to get it started yeah <laughs> so I, I said well let me check in my palm and see if i can me you did in. not <laughs> yeah i did she said really she said i'm taking a wild guess here that you have a lot of friends and they all think you're funny as hell and that you talk too much because you remind me of my best friend, Karen. Oh. And I said, well, I, that may be good. So I said, yeah, I can make it on the 23rd. So I met her in her box and we talked and we talked horses and we, we were together for uh, at least two races that she asked me to handicap. She said, how would you handicap the, these two next two races? And I was sweating bullets. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because. I'm just me. I'm not a handicapper. In fact, I call myself the anti-capper because handicapper. I bet on a horse. If I know the horse, if I've kissed the horse, if I know the owner, I want the horse yeah. to know I have confidence in him, something like that. <laughs> so I handicap two horses. Don't my two trifectas come in. Phew. No. So I know that was like divine intervention right there because there's yeah. no way I could have done that otherwise. But so we got to the end of the two hours and I had slipped a 
copy of my 70 page portfolio into the gift bag. And, uh, she promised she'd read it. And I thought, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, we said it was lovely to meet you. We hugged and I split and went back down to uh, Westchester County, which is about 170 miles from Saratoga. The next morning at seven thirty, she called me up and said, I love your writing. I think you're a great writer. I want you to come back on Saturday and meet the guy who runs secretary.com for me. And we have some projects for you. And I'm pretty sure that after you put secretary.com on your resume, other people are going to hire you. <laughs> and it probably so happened. So I went back on too. Saturday. And as they say, it was from there. But yeah. the tale, because I was so nervous before we parted ways, she patted my hand. And because she said, why are you nervous? And I said, you know, I don't know why, because half my life ago, I was in the music business in Atlanta and I met everybody. I worked for the Grammy Awards and I did PR for them. So part of my job was to meet people who were came to Atlanta who had won Grammys or even had been nominated. Mm-hmm. So I like had cocktails with the police, with Van Halen. But rock stars don't make me nervous. But she was Penny Chenery. That's I said, right. You're not a rock star. You're the queen of horse racing and horse racing matters. And right. so she patted my hand and looked at me with these gigantic, beautiful blue eyes of hers. And she said, well, I want to make you laugh. She said, do you know, did you hear about what I did right after Big Red won the Triple Crown? I said, had a party? She said, no. She said, at Keeneland, they had a huge uh, press conference. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Keeneland building. They have a, it's sort of a, it's set up like a conference room with raised seats that, you know, like a movie theater. Mm-hmm. except yeah. there's desks in front of them. So media can come and sit there and take notes. And there's a stage in the front. So Penny was the only female in the room. And she made a note twice of saying that there were no female journalists in the mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. There was, she was the only woman. And she said, so this idiot stood up and he said to me, Mrs. Tweedy, do men <laughs> scare you? And then as the aside, you know, where you would break, uh, break the aesthetic barrier and look at right at the camera. She turned yeah. to me and said, even though I had divorced John, they still called me Mrs. Tweedy. Oh, don't you love it? And so she said, so I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry. I don't know what you mean. He said, well, you're the only female in horse racing. And she, again, she turned to me and said, apparently he forgot about people like mm, Alaire DuPont uh, Elizabeth Arden, you know, women who've owned horses like in the forties and thirties. So she turned to him and said, you know what? She said, I'm, I'm not the first woman to be involved in horse racing. And he said, but I want to know, do men scare you? And she looked at me and then she looked at him and I could see her staring out into that audience of 400 males. And she said, so I said to him, Screw the men. I've got the horse. Yeah, exactly. And I laughed my butt off. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, I want T-shirts and bumper stickers. With that. that. Read that. <laughs> Screw the men. I've got the horse. Dash. Penny yeah. Chenery, 1973. Uh, not true. So yeah. <laughs> I love Penny because everybody, and she was, she was the soul of gracious. Yeah. American upper crust, totally Westchester County, New York. I mean, you see her in those uh, shift dresses and the bouncy blonde hair. Right. And she looked very much the role that she was. But underneath it all, she was 
Uh, <laughs> in fact, her, her business man. partner, Leonard, her, yeah, she was <laughs> her business partner, Leonard Lusky. I saw Leonard in September uh, when he was up with uh, uh, Secretariat's uh, Jockey, Ron Turcott and Jean Cruget, Seattle Slews. And they both came to Saratoga for uh, uh, an autograph signing thing in September. And Leonard told me it was it was a week after Penny had died. And he said that he had felt badly about staying with this commitment with the guys because she had just died. But her children all said, oh, no, no, this is good. It keeps Penny, my, our mother's life alive and her memory. And and he told me that he had been, I want to say it was ESPN that the night Penny died, they had called him. And they said, uh, you know, we've heard that she had said this word. And he said, oh, she likes cigars and bourbon, too. I mean, he said Penny was real. And she was. Penny was real. So that's she's the person who gave me my start as a writer and communicator in the sport of horse Fantastic. raising. And I will be eternally grateful. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, you you had all the talent and ability, but you just caught the, the right person at the right time, too. I love that. Uh, so much in life, isn't it, Marion? So much in life oh, yeah. is timing. But it's showing up. So And you did show up. I would love to hear a little bit about... John Henry too, or cigar, you know, I don't want to use you up all, all today because you've got, oh. you know, you've got some stories up your sleeve that we'd love to have you back too, but give me one of those, John Henry or cigar. Hmm. You have personal um, relationships with these horses. So I want to know. Yeah. I mean, I had personal moments with them. I'll, I'll do John Henry. I love cigar, but the John Henry story would probably make a lot of people go, Oh, she's full of crap. That's not real. But it was, it was. Uh, it turned out to be five days before he died in uh, 2007, and I didn't know. Of course, I didn't know he was going to be euthanized. He had been very sick. Uh, he had been, had been colicking, and but he he went back and forth. He was having bladder problems, but I decided to go visit him at the Kentucky Horse Park since I had some business there. So I stopped in to see him, and he was eating with the ferocity of a sailor on shore leave his this whole his whole one wall was packed with sweet timothy and he had his head buried in there eating his face off and then he would <laughs> dip his head in his water bucket and drink deeply and that was how he lived i mean john henry as you know was the meanest horse who ever drew breath on this or any other planet he was just mean i mean he turned on everybody yeah. And so, and he did, he lived life deeply. He ate deeply. He drank deeply. I mean, I looked at him. I said, you're sick. You don't look sick. His ribs weren't showing. He didn't look at all ill. He didn't behave ill. Mm. And then he came over to the webbing. And of course they have the, uh, they had the gate besides the webbing so that only he can only put his head through. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, he's going to eat my face because that's what John Henry did. And instead, he took his lips and he started on my forehead. And I thought, oh, my God, he's getting a taste of me before he eats my face. (laughs) And he worked his way down with his lips. And he ended up with his lips on my lips. And I don't think I, I think I did not breathe because seriously, I was terrified. I thought he was that, you know, he could rip my face off. And and he was mean enough to do it. And then after he had his lips on my lips, he moved to the side and pressed his gigantic right eyeball against my left eyeball. 
And we were literally eyeball to eyeball. And through my mind was going, I am eyeball to eyeball with the meanest horse on the planet. And maybe someplace deep inside, he understands that I love him. And so he decided not to eat me and decided instead to see if he could see into my soul through my eye. And so then he pulled his head back, tipped it a little to the left and looked at me as if to say, well, there you go. Well, about two minutes later, I cannot recall her name. I want to say Debbie, maybe his uh, groom who had been his groom for eight years. She came in with two big buckets of fresh water for him. And she opened up the webbing and she went to go in and immediately he reached his head out, put his ears back and went in to bite her. And, and I said to him, Hey, don't bite her. And she turned to me and said, Oh, he's John. That's what he does. He bites people. You know, here's what I was going going to interject in your story. Sometimes I think it's what people's expectations of the horse are. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, as well as I and all your listeners know, horses are the most intuitive intuitive animals on anywhere. I mean, a horse horse feels fear. I, I am convinced personally and have been for years that most horses who bite you know, when people go, oh, don't touch that horse. He's a biter. Well, it's mm-hmm. you keep telling him he's a biter, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, think, I, I think really you give up the bite. I mean, he, we should remind listeners, too, he was a gelding. So this isn't that typical stallion right. uh, testosterone thing going on. He was a gelding. No, so, he, so he was somebody, a gelding. I, and, no, yeah. not, not putting anybody no, down who handled them. It's just their expectation. Right, and, and, and you're right about uh, horses reading what we expect because horses are herd animals and prey animals. And so I'm pretty convinced that if I approach a horse and I'm terrified of him or her, well, that horse is thinking, Oh my God, she's afraid of something. We're prey animals. Exactly. There must be something to be afraid of. Right. That's right. So then the horse goes and puts the ears back and is ready to attack. It's that if if I'm giving off fear, then the horse is thinking, well, we're all part of the same herd. You're afraid. So I'm afraid. Congratulations. But if you approach the horse with with, with compassion and understanding, the horse goes, oh, we have a good vibe here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that horses trust any of us, we being predators and having eyeballs in the front of our heads is amazing. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the yeah, fact I agree. That, I, 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 well, we're a, predator and prey. It's a crazy relationship, yeah. isn't it? it? It is. I mean, and and that's what one of the things that astounds me about horses. is They are such enormous animals. And yet the majority of them are so gentle yeah. that they have these gentle. Well, I, I refer to heart. The emotional heart of a horse inside is so kind. It's predisposed to being kind. And. I think that that's part of being a prey prey creature is that when you know the whole world could be out to get you, if their eyeballs are on the front, you want to be as kind as you can to those who are part of your herd. You want to nurture. And I just think it's amazing that horses can look me or you or anybody who's a human being and think, okay, you're potentially a predator, but you're being nice to me. So I'm going to go with that. You haven't heard I me think yet. That's amazing. So I guess I'll trust you. Yeah. 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 That's, I think that's amazing. Yeah. I think so too. And da- uh, dad, Monty Roberts likes to say something like, you know, sometimes I think they think 
this is great. I have my own private predator with me, you know, <laughs> it's like a protection. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's my that. own private predator will go out and get the other predators who would try to hurt yeah. me. Exactly. <laughs> well, Mary, it's so much fun to talk to you. We, yeah, we should do this again. We, we should do a regular storytelling around the, around the, uh, yeah, I was going to say campfire, but for us, it's more like around the track. <laughs> so yes, stories that would be around great. the track. I would love you that. you have so many other stories. We'll have you back. People will be dying to hear about Cigar, of course, because we've teased uh-huh. that one now. <laughs> and yeah. and yeah. other articles, I should say, too, that Equine Info Exchange has these art, these wonderful articles. And Kathy and um, uh, all the team over there are just amazing and, and doing a really good job of disseminating information. I'm happy to... Oh. Uh, yeah, happy to supply yeah. that as a source for people to go look at and find other stories by you and um, enjoy oh, your writing, you. enjoy your stories. Beautiful writer. Thank you so much, Marian. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. And thank you, Jen. Ciao, Jen. Ciao. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place than The magic in the language of Hello, everyone. Coach Jen here. I am pinch-hitting for Jamie this month. She will be back again next time, so fear not. So here goes Ask Monty, Episode 110. I am afraid of catching my horse in the field. What should I do? Monty's answer. If you are afraid to go and catch a horse in the field, then do not do it. A horse can sense fear and has the potential to get you into a lot of trouble. Learn how to move around a horse and work with an older trained horse before you take any chances out in the field. Once you can move around a horse well and you know where he is going, you will be more comfortable catching your horse. One should actually never catch a horse. A horse should catch you. And when you can do that by learning the language and accomplishing appropriate join-up, catching will be the least of your worries. It would not be wise for me to simply set out here instructions on how to catch a horse. The act of coming together with your horse in a pasture or field should be viewed only as the natural outcome of a proper understanding of your partnership. It is rewarding to understand your horse's language and natural tendencies, which then can be used to bring horses into a cooperative partnership with a human. There is no way that we can simply learn certain segments of horsemanship. Each piece of understanding is a part of a mosaic of comprehension, and we need to relate each one to all the others until we have a complete comprehension. Obviously, there are layers of equine understanding, some more complicated than others, but it is not extremely difficult to become conversational with the nature of your horse, especially given that there are greater opportunities for learning today than there ever have been. Should you choose to accept the challenge to educate yourself in the language of equus, you will be greatly rewarded throughout your life in all your relationships with horses. The act of joining up with your horse involves moving through a language of gestures that I believe has been in place for millions of years. Through this effort, it is possible to first encourage the horse to go away and then to accept his decision to return. Allow it to happen and achieve that moment in which the horse chooses to be with you rather than away from you. It will be an effective tool and you'll have fun with it too. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, 
Go to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online too on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, April 21st, 2018 at the West Coast Dressage Convention in Thousand Oaks, California, May 23 and 24, 2018, the, the Movement Symposium and Certified Instructors Meetup in California, May 25 to 27 is Horse Sense and Healing in USA, and July 23 to August 3 is the Gentling Wild Horses Courses at Flag is Up Farms. Then August 6 through 10 is our iconic Monty Special Training at Flag is Up Farms, I we started that in 2006. It goes way back. Wow, I didn't know that was been around that long. That's great. So each 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 show, I ask you about things that are going on at, at Flag is Up Farm and in Monty's calendar. Mm-hmm. Horse sense and healing. Give me the Reader's Digest, the Twitter. Give me the Twitter description <laughs> of horse sense and healing. I only get 140 characters. Huh? That's horse it. sense and healing is amazing. Uh, we had worked on a documentary and finally launched this as a program in 2010. And we started off calling it Horse Sense and Soldiers after the name that they put Discovery Channel put on the documentary that they made. But we expanded it because soldiers was fairly limiting. And we have now first responders, uh, police, fire, uh, anybody who's really gone through the discipline of something like the military and had to deal with the stress that comes with that job. And these people are, they're trained in how to deal with the emergency level and the adrenaline and to stay calm, but they're really never taught how to go back into domestic settings, uh, like coming back from Afghanistan and then just reacquainting yourself with your family again. And how do you how do you build trust back up when it was really stripped of you? And that this program, we use horses as a mirror, um, as a tool, basically. They build a relationship with their horse over three days, and we do join up, of course. And it's a way that they learn to breathe, sync with horses, their heart rates. I mean, everybody knows that the, there's something good for the outside of a person and, that a horse produces and just goes down into your system mm-hmm. to physiology, but also that relationship and mm-hmm. building trust again with people that some people have been literally locked away for, you know, in their homes as prisoners, really in their own minds and homes for generations. We have people from Vietnam all the way through to active duty. Oh, that's really cool. So is horse sense and healing something that one, um, attends via a group or organization, or is that something individuals sign up for? Both, actually. Yeah, it's a great question. So we do have organizations that will um, jury or 
you know, kind of find out who's appropriate to send to our program. Like, you know, that's there are some limitations to it. We're also looking for people who don't just want a free training weekend with their with a horse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I broke really my sure. finger while I was in France. Well, no, it's more that, like that doesn't hey, count. I'd love no. to learn how to do join up for money and it's free to yeah. our our veterans. So we really are looking for people who can be helped on the weekend. Yes. And yeah. So there's a registration process, but it's it's really, you know, the 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 one thing that people learn when they work with the military is that they're really decent people. They're really good people. And we love working with the military and for that matter, the police and the fire and the EMTs have been incredible to work with too. They're, they have integrity, they have discipline and they really do want help. Um, it's just not offered out there in very many effective ways. And we know that the VA is overworked and, um, there, you know, there's mostly medication coming from those sources. So we ask that they just leave that at home and that they come and learn, from the horses, mm-hmm. how to trust again. So if someone listening to the show says to themselves, this is something that I could benefit from or mm-hmm. someone I care about could benefit from, what would be their first step? Would they... Yeah, thank co- you for asking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can read about us first on the website. So we have a, a www.join-up.org. It's our nonprofit organization. There we go joinup.org. You can read, you can click on the tab that says veterans and it is, you know, but if you're police or fire or EMT or don't let, let that dissuade you, we should probably change that. It just has always been there. And so, um, that's our program or sense and healing, and you can read about it there. But if you're just ready to pick up the phone and talk to a, a nice person, there's Adam Bates at our office is the administrator and he can fill out the registration right over the phone. Um, or you can email admin at montyroberts.com and start the process that way. Then we have a few veterans that volunteer to pick up the phone and call and walk you through the registration and make sure that everything is doable and the scheduling is going to work and that we have the classes not full when you get here. <laughs> and so, and, and just be prepared for a full Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We even have housing uh, covered by another organization has covered the expense of that. And another organization has provided the housing that's nearby. So it really is something that we want to, move, remove all the barriers Mm -hmm. for entry to this, but we really do want people who are seriously interested in, dad like to change the name PTSD. Some people know PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, but he likes to say that people didn't go over to serve in the military with a disorder. So why do we assume that they came back with a disorder, which sounds like something, you know, was wrong with them. And, uh, he likes to call it an injury. Because an injury is something that you can recover from, you can heal, you can get over. So we call it PTSI. So if somebody is seriously considering doing something about post-traumatic stress, then they should give us a call or send us an email. There we go. Join-up.org. There That's we go. It. Well, if you couldn't get all of that into your memory banks while we were chatting about it in your earbuds, you can go to moneyroberts.com and find all this great information. If I remember right... On MontyRoberts.com, you can also find your way to join up. Yes, yes you there's can. Links there. They're all connected to each other. No worries. Or if you're, if you're a phone caller, you can give them a call there at Flag is Up Farms. It's 805-688-6288. And for details about today's show, 
go to horsemanshipradio.com and there we will have links and photos and more information about today's de- guests and topics. And we love your feedback. Feedback. I can't talk today. It helps us make the show better. Follow <laughs> Monty Roberts on Facebook by searching Monty Roberts. Look for the one with the little blue check mark. That's the official page. And if you like to live your life 140 characters at a time, you can follow Monty Roberts on Twitter. His handle is Monty underscore Roberts. And get the app. Don't miss any of the shows on Horse Radio Network. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network for Android or iPhone. Download the app. It's free and easy to use. Or you can use your favorite podcatcher or you can subscribe via iTunes. Take it away, Debbie. Many thanks to our sponsors, too. That's Omega Fields, Cavallo Horse and Rider, and Monty Roberts University. And be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. (laughs) 